Hello and welcome to People, Places, Power with me, Nick Cull. And me, Simon Anhalt. In this podcast, we think about issues of international reputation and foreign policy and a few other things along the way. And in today's episode, we're going to talk about one of the most interesting, I think, international images out there, the image of Israel. And maybe you could set the scene for us, Simon. You know, Israel, always controversial, but how does it shape up as an international image right now? Well, right now, I can't say very much because the last time we we included, Israel is not regularly included in the Nation Brands Index. It's not one of the list of 50 that we normally measure. The space in the ranking is very limited. Last time we included it was in 2007, a long time ago. It is actually going to appear again this year. It's been included in the 2021 Nation Brands Index. So when we're able to start sharing some of the results in public, which typically will be towards the end of October, November, we'll be able to see what changes, if any, there have been. But, but as you know, Nick, and as, as we've, uh, we've often said, um, the NBI is, is a remarkably stable indicator. So, you know, there are plenty of surveys where you would say, well, there's no point at all in looking at data from you know, 13 years ago. Uh, but actually, in the case of the NBI, it's more likely that things haven't changed in that long period than that they have. So the first, the first time we included Israel in the Nation Brands Index, it was in the third quarter of 2006. You might remember that in 2005, 2006, 2007, we used to do this quarterly until we discovered that it was really so boring because there were so few changes that once a year was quite enough. So in, in the third quarter of 2006, it ranked bottom. Uh, it was 36th out of the 36 countries measured. And uh, then in the next quarter, it ranked 37th out of 38 because we included Iran and uh, Iran ranked lower than Israel. And then that was more or less the picture. So there you go, pretty near the bottom of the list. And I would expect that we will find that it's near the bottom of the list again when we measure it today. So quite an important um, question, I think, for us discussion today is why? Mm-hmm. What do you think? Right. Um, well, I think it's a question that the Israelis have thought about a lot. And, and you know, there, there, are, there are two issues here. But, you know, the first one is the one that came up when the consultants for the Israeli foreign ministry conducted that, that famous House of Israel experiment, you know, where they ask uh, focus groups to describe a house and mm. what would it be, feel like to visit the house and these these people had no idea that this was an Israel, Israel experiment, but they described the house of Italy as full of warmth and and uh, comfortable and a family laughing and talking and you know they had good feelings about the house of France and good feelings of, uh, right the way around different countries. But when they got to the house of Israel, what they described was concrete, barbed wire, people being really tense, people in a, in a state of anxiety. And just the conclusion from that was that the conflict was superseding every other aspect of Israel's public profile. 
and and they found that, that this basically this reaction was the same whether or not they were talking to diaspora groups or Americans or Europeans uh, that right the way around um, the world people had the same kind of reaction that the first thing they saw was the conflict which of course was something that it, for Israelis they were very surprised by because their own experience of the country is much closer to what other people thought that Italy was like. But maybe they were, you know, we know that we can't see our own our own failings. So one would expect in this that, you know, that the uh, outsiders have a legitimate um, position. And the other thing, so, you know, maybe we should start with the 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 problem of the problem the way in which you become branded by being a crisis country yes and yes. is that your sense that israel is you know is is branded by being that that crisis country yeah absolutely and that that's the the, the very phrase i've used over the, over the years to to describe this problem when when a country becomes synonymous with its problems it, it, it is enormously difficult for it to 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 really break away from them and the, the funny thing about the conflict is that contrary to what most governments and experts believe in this field, the question about whether you deserve that or not, or whether it's your fault or not, or whether it's people being horrible about you or not, is kind of irrelevant. It's just a question mm-hmm. of what people associate with you. And mm-hmm. the reason why people rank Israel so low in the rankings is not because they necessarily blame Israel for the conflict or think that Israel is necessarily res- primarily responsible or anything of that sort, which naturally the Israelis, it's their immediate response to assume that they're being blamed and that's why they're being downgraded. But that's not really the way it works. People just have a powerful association of conflict with Israel and international public opinion does not tolerate conflict. Um, and we've seen this over and over again uh, in the Nation Brands Index. It doesn't matter who's to blame. It doesn't matter who's the underdog. It doesn't matter who's the aggressor. Where there is conflict, people feel a sense of rejection, a sense almost of disgust. They don't want to have anything to do with it. And that's why uh, if you if you extend the research and you ask people to describe in more detail what they're talking about here, Israel-Palestine is just one thing as far as they're concerned. Indeed, the Middle East is just one thing as far as they're concerned. All they ever hear about it is pain, loss, suffering, violence, and danger, and they and they don't tolerate it. And so the conflict damages uh, Israel's prospects just as much as it damages Palestine's conflict uh, mm-hmm. in, in interests. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the reasons. I, I think that there are there there are some locations where I think Israel has done an extra uh, has done an excellent job of being about something other than. The conflict. Uh, I know you hate expos, but mm. uh, the Israeli pavilion at the Shanghai Expo in 2010 did a really great job of telling the people of Shanghai, hey, Israel is about laptops and uh, new technology and it's relevant about things that are relevant to you. And they didn't talk about Moses. They didn't say we're the Moses country. They said we're the Einstein country. Yeah, Palestine. I then trotted over to the Palestine Pavilion, and they had the pavilion was dominated by a giant digital picture of Yasser Arafat made out of tiny pictures of Palestinian suffering. So it was it went in completely the opposite direction. When they had a chance to present something constructive to an an important potential 
customer. They mm. they went entirely branding themselves uh, with images of of, of suffering. Yeah. Uh, it, it seemed to me to be a mistake. Perhaps, although my suspicion is that neither of those uh, approaches will have had any uh, impact whatsoever. We can see it in the results because the big, big question in this field always is how can you go from a plausible argument, like let's change the subject, let's talk about the good things that go on in this country, to measurable mass changes in perceptions of a country? Because that's the thing that nobody ever succeeds in doing. A lot of people, um, a lot of governments spend a great deal of money in producing very plausible arguments and present them very attractively. Do they change people's minds on a large scale? No, they never do. That's partly because on a large scale, they're not seen. Very few. I mean, I don't talk about marketing, but the reality of this is that none of these countries spend anything like as much money as you would need to do, simply even to put messages in front of everybody around the world. They need to be spending hundreds of millions of dollars uh, to get that message out to a global audience. And no country spends anything like that much. That's even assuming that it might make a difference, but it doesn't. Because if somebody believes something about a country and they've believed it all their life, the way not to change their minds is to tell them they're wrong. And and time it's just very poor psychology. Time after time after time, we've seen that there is no dialogue to be had with international public opinion. The, the Israeli idea of Hasbara, the idea that you can have this logical contest with public opinion and you can make your case and you can persuade them to change their minds, it's a fantasy. It doesn't exist. There is no dialogue with international public opinion. And the reality of the matter is that you cannot change the subject either. And I've seen country after country after country doing what Israel has tried to do, which is basically change the subject and say, listen, we don't want to talk about conflict. We want to talk about IT or we want to talk about yes, the- wine. They did, they've done some great stuff around wine. They've done yeah. stuff around <laughs> the day. Even at one horrible, memorable moment, uh, deciding to show uh, young men around the world how attractive the women of the Israeli Defence Force were. That was an actual <laughs> campaign. <laughs> No, that was, but it was unexpected. You know, that was unexpected. That Maxim shoot, mm. ladies of the uh, of the IDF, was was un- unexpected. And so I thought that was really interesting. It made me sit up and look. Uh, not that I reviewed the magazine, you understand, but it was just unexpected. And there's something to be said for. For, for being unexpected. But I think the unexpected thing we're waiting for is not the ladies of the IDF or uh, there was an Israeli NGO that did hot guys with hummus as a way of showing attractive Israeli men. But we're, we're looking for, on, on, at some level, this has got to be about attractive policy. And the, we're waiting for the policy breakthrough. And, there ha- and the world is not stupid. It's looking for the policies that make people feel good. And maybe the accords with uh, the Gulf states are the start of a different kind of policy. And, you know, it would, I wish we'd had this kind of polling that we now have. I wish we'd had you in the 70s. Uh, of course, we did have you in the 70s, but you weren't conducting opinion polls then. To, to understand what happened with what happened with the Camp David Accords and whether that made the world as a whole, feel better about Israel when they could see, when Israel became part of a good story. I mean, I mean, think about the, you've said before that it takes a big change 
to make a big change. So the end of apartheid in South Africa really turned around the significantly turned around what people thought about South Africa because the country had changed. I'm very interested in the in the ongoing image of Spain. And I can see how General Franco tinkered at the edge. He tried tourist publicity. He tried various things to promote the image of Spain. But ultimately, he had to change the law, democratize and die in order for the image of Spain. And Spain had to really change for it to be repositioned in the international imagination. Yes. But, you know, I, I it, it seems to me that the kind of policy changes necessary to change international opinion are, are not on the cards right now for various reasons, uh, not all of them to do with the mindset of the government of Israel. Yeah. Well, I'll, tell, I'll, I'll be a little um, indiscreet uh, here, and I'll tell you that I've had conversations with the government of Israel on numerous occasions during the last 20 years, and they've approached me and they've said, we need to do something about our image, can you fix it? And I've said to them always the same thing. I've said, I don't think that anybody can do anything to fix your image unless this is a conversation we have with Palestine at the same table. When you both recognize that this is your sh- that, that image is your shared problem and it has shared roots and it is only going to be resolved if and when you both sit down together and say, what can we do collectively to earn ourselves a better mm-hmm. reputation? And at that point, it's become pretty obvious from the conversation that that wasn't really what they wanted to hear and indeed wouldn't hear it. It's arguably politically impossible anyway to have those conversations in in both countries. And that's part of the problem that the leaders may be pulled one way by their domestic population and they're pulled the other way by international opinion and they're stuck in the middle. I do have some sympathy for that, Mm -hmm. but clearly all that uh, they're interested in, and I would imagine the same goes for Palestinian uh, for, for Palestinian leaders as well, is new forms of propaganda. How can we how can we better make our case? How can we make people take our side? And that's so evident, self-evidently exactly the wrong way to be looking at the problem. As long as both sides are convinced that, uh, that this is a question of making their own case more powerfully, things will only get worse. Within the activities that Israel has conducted, there have been some really interesting initiatives and we can tell that they're interesting by the way in which they've become they've been adapted by other countries i'm thinking particularly of birthright programs reaching out to the diaspora Hmm. and the way in which uh, so for listeners who aren't aware if you're jewish in certainly in the united states and in a number of other countries you can apply for a two or three week uh, trip to Israel to learn about the country and to kind of awaken a connection to mm. your ancestral origins. Mm. And this has worked, has worked well, building links with the, with the diaspora so well that there are now parallel birthright programs conducted by many countries. Mm-hmm. I've looked at the Ar- Armenian program. I know there's one for Hungary, one for Greece. There, uh, you can go right around the map and find other countries that are, are doing this. Mm-hmm. And so I think we can look at Israel as, a, as an innovative country in its connection to its diaspora. Yeah. Well, we, we must we must remember to come back to Israel when the Nation Brands Index results are out again in a, in, in a few episodes time and we'll review and we can ask ourselves that question. Now we'll have some data from 2021 and we can see whether 
all of this, as, as you rightly say, interesting work has actually had a measurable impact on Israel's uh, image during the intervening 15 years or so. My suspicion is it won't have done. I think that those those homecoming ideas are in many ways much more sensible than these very grandiose schemes to rebrand countries for the simple reason that you're aiming for the low-hanging fruit. We've talked before about how the significant thing is not whether people like you, but whether they want to like you. And when you're talking about homecoming schemes of this sort, you're talking to the people who are prepared to like you and maybe haven't thought about it before, but it's not going to be too hard to persuade them. And I think that that makes a a good deal of sense, as long as you bear in mind that in no sense of the word is this about rebranding the country. You're simply communicating with a segment of your target audience, one that's easier for you to communicate with and conceivably doing a good job uh, in doing so. Will it change the overall image of the country in the world? No. Um, But then maybe that's a bit of an overvalued uh, ambition at the best of times. The other thing, the other big thing about the image of Israel is the extent to which it isn't really dependent on what the country says or does, but on a kind of a function that the country has in Mm. the imagination of other places. So if, if Israel didn't exist, the... Arab states of the Middle East would need to invent it or something similar so they could all agree about something. And quite often, you, you know, you, you, th- th- there's a sort of a peculiar, I've, I felt this talking to people from Qatar, broadcasters from Qatar, where they were really fascinated by Israel, and th- th- they clearly had a need to, to have it out there as some kind of fixed point. And I think there are other people who who kind of need Israel as a bad place Mm. so that they can steer in the opposite in the opposite direction. And that's very hard for that. That would be a very hard thing for Israel to overcome because they have to develop a meaning for the place over and above the meaning they already have, the significance they already have as the, the, the place you love to hate. You know, and I think that, that that that's clearly going on in the minds of many people around the world. My my friend Eitan Gilboa talks about brand jacking, the mm. idea that the that the image of Israel has actually been captured by its adversaries and is articulated to serve their policy needs, which have no relation at all to the interests of and why would they? But they have no in, no no relation at all to to a um, reality or what Israel uh, what Israel needs in the world that Israel is, has lost control or is losing control of its image yes in many places it's also interesting that in a contrary kind of way many governments I've spoken to in the Middle East are absolutely convinced that the Israelis have somehow got the secret of how to promote their image and time and time again I'm asked around the Middle East can you tell us how the Israelis do it and they're convinced yes. that Israel is somehow the master of global propaganda. And I, and I show them the Nation Brands Index from 2007, and I say, I don't see any evidence that despite the hyperactivity and the expenditure of money and the brilliant thinking, that Israel has discovered the secrets any more than you have. So there's a lot of misunderstanding there, a lot of, a lot of curious kind of envy alongside what you imagine to be uh, hatred, but it's certainly true um, that Israel and Palestine both act as lightning conductors for, for 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 broader sentiments, and it's again part of the reason why 
the Israel-Palestine conflict is such a crucible for intense emotions because both of them are lightning conductors for very, very broad, very pervasive, very um, voracious kinds of, um, of, of, of um, primitive prejudice. You know, let, let me explain what I mean by that, because if you if you look, as we often do, Nick, at the, at the difference between Israel's ranking in the Good Country Index, what it actually does for the world outside its borders, it ranks significantly better than it does in the Nation Brands Index, what people think about it. So Israel, you know, generally speaking, is in the top 50 in the Good Country Index. Relative to the size of its economy, it contributes almost as much to the world as the US does, and slightly more than Russia. So this is a country which is no free rider when it comes to the international community, and yet its image is right down there on the, in the basement along with the others. So this looks very much like the kind of halo effect that you and I have spoken about before. And you can examine that a little bit more closely. So if you go back again to the Nation Brands Index, and you go to the specific question or other statement, this country behaves responsibly in the areas of international peace and security. And we find that globally on average, Israel is ranked last of all the countries in the index in response to that statement. Now, that's not surprising, but then you, the next question is, what is this country's contribution to the environment and world poverty? And again, Israel is right at the bottom of the list. And there you start thinking, well, that's not fair. That's interesting. No, 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 it, is, it isn't. It isn't fair it, at it all. Really, and you look at the contribution of Israelis to disaster relief around absolutely. the world. And, and the effort they go to to make sure people know about it. And, and it yes. really looks as if its entire international image, the good and the bad, is overshadowed by, by the geopolitics. And, and I have no doubt that a very significant part of that could be uh, ascribed to anti-Semitism. You look at the, the Pew survey on anti-Semitism and it is noted, it's measured in many countries around the world. But you also look at surveys measuring anti-Islam sentiment and anti-Arab sentiment and you'll find it's equally widespread. So I think that Israel is acting as a lightning conductor in part for anti-Semitism around the world, and Palestine is acting as a lightning conductor for anti-Arabism and anti-Islam all around the world. So, so what a calamity. Those two lightning conductors are sharing the same tiny space and failing to get on. It really is, well, if it doesn't sound so cynical, a fascinating problem. I, well, as a historian, when I look at it, I, I'm I'm struck by the repositioning of Israel o, o, over the years because it's quite clear in the 50s and 60s that Israel is benefiting from a kind of David and Goliath effect, where mm. Israel is seen as the David yeah. and it has a tremendous soft power coming mm. from historical victimhood. Yeah. Uh, but then this changes in the space of just a few years in the late 60s, early 70s to being a David and Goliath feeling. But Israel is suddenly seen as the as the Goliath and the Palestinians uh, get the, the soft power of from their mm. suffering. Yes. And, you, you know, you have this moment of the, the UN vote in the 70s that uh, Zionism and racism are the same thing and which has since been rescinded. But I, I, that was a, I think a tremendously a tremendous watershed moment in, in in the world's reaction to Israel, and it's very interesting to see that repositioning of of the country. And I'm sure that was a, a well, I know it was a painful 
process for older older Israelis and visited there would have been about 2011 talking to Israelis about their image and there was a tremendous nostalgia for the way Israel used to be and the one picture that people would say what we want to be is as we were in the early 1960s in like that and multiple people said this like in that movie exodus where paul newman comes out of the sea and mm. he's got uh he's bare-chested and he's going to fight and that's what we want to be that's mm. but uh, it's hard to see how that moment could be re- recaptured mm. well partly, partly also because all of this ultimately stems from the population and the makeup of the israeli population has changed so dramatically since the 1960s Back then, it, part of the reason why it was a very, very different country was because the population was a very, very different group of people. They were predominantly emigres from Europe, and that's no longer the case. So Israel is, in many respects, far less European than it used to be. That's that's one of the many, many changes. I'm no expert, but it's one of the many changes that have taken place in the country uh, during the last decades. And a country whose fundamental um, ethnic recipe is so flexible and so volatile and changes so much more rapidly than in most other countries, is always going to play by different rules uh, from other countries and, and respond to external stimuli in different ways. But the, you know, the ultimate problem that comes out of Israel, and um, we see it in the positioning of Japan, is whether in a collaborative century, it makes sense to have a country that is conceptualized around exclusivity and uh, for for one particular group and in the case of Israel that's the essence of the identity of Israel the the, the state as a homeland for Jewish people how can it can Israel hope to reconcile that identity with the expectations of, 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 that we see being being imposed on states in the or the, that are exist for states in the 21st century of collaboration and integration and an inclusive uh, identity. Absolutely. Well, many of Israel's supporters listening to us having this conversation might well say, none of what you're saying makes sense because you are persistently talking about Israel as if it were a normal country, but it's not a normal country and possibly never will be. And I think perhaps the heart of the matter is that item that you've just identified. In, in, in a funny kind of way, it's suddenly a very unfashionable idea, an exclusive country, a homeland for a specific race, a specific ethnicity. No comment about the justice of that, but just the mere fact of it. It's out of step. It, it's out of step with 21st century thinking. So, so the, the, the interesting task for Israel, and it's, it's uh, a task that, that many prominent Israeli thinkers, I think, have been contributing a lot of firepower to over recent years is how can that idea be updated so that it does actually make sense in the 21st century in the age of the grand challenges in the age of uh, collective um, existential challenges like like climate change and pandemics israel like so many other countries in the pandemic for example mostly all it seems to be able to do is to say look we're handling this better than anybody else because we're better which is what most other countries are doing and it gets nobody anywhere so I don't know. It's a it's a really, really interesting, perhaps impossible question to ask. How do you update the idea of Israel to make it an ex- inclusive modern state? And to a very great extent, that question is answered because it is, in any case, uh, one of the most multiracial states um, on the planet. 
and multinational, multi-ethnic and multi-faith. And so to some extent, a detached observer might well say, well, it's not really surprising that it's so turbulent because it's every country in the world today, almost without exception, is having to deal with um, a changing um, ethnic, racial and national profile. And it always causes turbulence, always, whilst the country and the populations get used to it, and whilst it beds down. We know from experience it can take decades, if not generations, to do so. Israel is having to face that degree of turbulence to the power of 10 at five times the speed of any other country. So not right. really surprising that it finds it a challenge. But, you know, it seems to me that the that the only way forward is through collaboration. And so the, the Abraham Accords are a, a, a tremendous step in the right direction. But the more collaborations that can take place, the more Israel is present in people's lives and relevant as a partner, relevant as a, a state for positive uh, positive reasons, the more the 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 the, the better, and the extent to which the country is meaningful only because of the conflict or or without connections in other contexts, that's that's negative. Whatever you think of Israel, that's that's negative for 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 them and for the situation. Quite so. And 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 what's good? What's reassuring? I think about the Abraham Accords and and uh, a number of Arab states appearing to be pretty sanguine about the idea of uh, giving increasing recognition to Israel. It reminds us that trade, although it gets a bad rap um, amongst the critics of globalization, is in many senses actually a very healthy thing because it takes away the international relations of identity and the international relations of religion and the international relations of emotion and replaces them with the international relations of expediency. we all need to feed our populations. We all need to grow our economies. We all need to do well. We all need to provide um, security and prosperity for our people. So let's deal with the countries with whom we can deal. Let's trade with the countries with whom we can trade and where there's a clear mutual interest in doing so. And it's one of the things that I like about the globalization of trade, that it makes people just more grown up and more sensible and less inclined to to set their international policy compass on the basis of uh, beliefs or ideologies, which, as we know, cannot end well. Right. And, but this has been the mantra from some scholars for 150 years now. Uh, the, the great hope is in a recognition of interdependence and mutual interest. And yet we see time and time again it's been, it's been derailed by other uh, other thoughts. Well, you know, this could get us. I think we're, we we could now get into a philosophical discussion, which is too much for today. That's all we have time for. Uh, thank you so much for listening. I'm still Nick Cull. I'm still Simon Elmholt.